Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts for the digital workspace inner workings. So uh, welcome on to the Digital Workspace Works podcast, Butu. Do you want to introduce yourself to everybody? Hi, Ryan. Um, so I'm Butu Mohosia, a medical doctor by background. I studied in Australia and then finally made my way to South Africa to work for Discovery. Wow, I did not expect that. Studying in Australia. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Um, people, so get, I- people leave there, but they don't come back. <laughs> so I'm originally from Botswana. And one of the privileges is obviously good governance. All you had to do as a kid was get good grades and then you could get a scholarship from the government. And if you got top tier grades, you get to pick from the US, the UK and Australia. Uh, So that's how I landed up in Melbourne. Wow, I did not know that. That's amazing. Okay, so so, well, uh, let's get the usual question out of the way and then we can go into this other stuff. So what does the digital workspace mean to you? For me, it's exciting because I'm passionate about healthcare. And very early on as a doctor, what I realized was my impact would only be limited to those patients that I directly treated. But as part of my day-to-day job, you could see, you know, how outcomes varied depending on which hands a patient landed in. So for me, I felt like to be able to influence healthcare I needed to to join the dark side and join the insurers and the payers because then you get to influence healthcare at scale. And then, of course, COVID hit and it really put digital technology to the forefront. So now it's it's the possibilities are infinite. When you look at healthcare, one of the the primary issues is one healthcare expenditure, but also there's a lot of disparities. Um, you've got communities that are previously disadvantaged that don't have access to amazing healthcare. But digital technology almost turns that upside down. For me, I feel like, you know, when you look at innovation such as hospital at home, which I'm leading, it's, I mean, it won't fix all of the issues that we experience in healthcare, but I think it will take us quite a few strides forward in terms of addressing some of the disparities that we've experienced in healthcare to date. Wow, that is the best answer I've ever heard for anything. Because there's so many things I want to back from that. So, I mean, and, 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 you know, I mean, I grew up in SA and I still think South Africa or Southern Africa has some of the best medical capabilities in the world. Absolutely. I mean, we, as I said to you before we started recording for the episode, we've spent time back in SA in the last three years, you know, the so-called bad time of South Africa. And we still treated better than, and I mean, the NHS is not terrible. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's completely, it's completely broken if, and, and avoid the being taken off youtube again for swearing <laughs> it's 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 a mess and and i mean you, you know it's a mess when you've got to wait six weeks to talk to your gp face to face exactly you know my son needs to get his hearing test done we had to wait six weeks for one appointment for the check for earwax another six weeks for the next actual hearing test i was actually saying to my wife she had a kidney thing why not just fly us back to Joburg for a week yep. and just do everything in a week and do everything that's absolutely you know, and, and that's where Discovery, you know, as a, as a provider, and you mentioned the sort of health insurance world, the dark side. I mean, it is dark. I mean, it's expensive and all the rest of it. But 
but we get so used to it in South Africa having the ability when you've got the means to go see a doctor. Yeah. And and your your points around technology being a multiplier, it is that. I mean, I you know, we my wife spent the whole day in A and E last week, two weeks ago, for eight hours we were there. And we we would pillar to post, different doctors, triage and et cetera. And we were driving home and we just said, like, this is just an AI problem. Yeah. You know, do the blood test, do the this, do that. AI tells you what the potential things are. I mean, you could you could fill out a questionnaire. You don't even need yeah. the blood test in some cases. And and that's where I think South Africa and, and Discovery, you know, like Momentum, you know, the, the two big players, the innovation there. And I'm very interested to know what a hospital at home is because I think it's probably what I think it is. It's it's bringing that you're getting closer and closer to the source for the person, and and I think that's an important step. So maybe I'll stop talking and let you talk because you got yeah. some interesting stuff to say. Absolutely, and I mean I echo your sentiments. I mean I've spent I've lived a year in the U.S. and then spent seven years in Australia. The South African healthcare private sector is the best in the world. Facilities, you know, our doctors, etc. And like you rightfully says, a lot of the the issues that you experience, for example, in the NHS, also in the US and in in Australia, in terms of waiting times, etc., that doesn't exist in, in in South Africa. So if you've got a healthcare need in the private sector, you can get assistance quite easily. Obviously, that also brings you know its own kind of evils in the sense that you've got then got overservicing and potentially high cost interventions that aren't typically uh, you know necessary. But from a facility and from the skill of our doctors, I think we're definitely the best healthcare system in the world. It's interesting. I've never heard anyone mentioned over-servicing, but, uh, but we were actually trying to explain to somebody yesterday about gap cover, why you need to have gap cover. And we're trying to, exp- and it's actually quite a complex thing to explain to somebody who's never grown up with, with a private medical aid. Mm-hmm. Because when we explain to them that the, basically a medical aid or medical aid scheme is a pot of money that's risk-based. And that the medical aid schemes will agree on what they'll pay for certain procedures. And there's obviously a huge book of procedures. Exactly. But you'll have specialists that'll say that, oh, well, I'll, I'll, you know, if the medical aid is telling me that the rate is X, my rate is for X. Absolutely. And that's why you need gap cover. Yep. And he was gobsmacked that there's a whole industry. And I said, yeah, and you just, you have to buy medical aid. Like, you you know, if, if you got, if you earn a salary, you have to have it. And then you have to have gap cover. And the gap cover is like a small amount. Yep. But. But if you don't have it, you, you know, you can talk, you know, six, seven figure numbers if yep. you get it wrong. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 an interesting thing, but I think it's 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 where the world will go. I, I think the, the NHS has no choice but to, to stop being the bottleneck and actually yep. to, to allow privatization. And I think the U.S., which, which which was Obamacare to some extent, which has been undone, was going down the route anyway. But it's I mean, let's talk about the hospital at home thing, because I think that's an interesting sentence but let's unpack it a bit yeah so hospital at home as as an innovation has actually been around for i'd say just over 20 years okay. started in in australia they're a lot more advanced than many countries across the globe and it was essentially initially the concept was centered around elderly patients so our geriatric patients what we know mm-hmm. is if you remove them from the home put them in unfamiliar surroundings hospital environment where there's alarms going off, there's no watches on the clock, the faces aren't familiar, most of them will will get all sorts of complications. And one of them is, is delirious. They'll get delirious and confused. And often what happens is they get sedated or they have to get restraints. 
And then because they're also susceptible to falls, hospitals typically have slippery falls and there's no one sitting at the bedside helping you, you know, navigate your room and go to the bathroom and back. So we know that if you take elderly patients, put them in the hospital, one in three of them will have what we call an adverse event. If you look at the general population, that figure is one in 10. So hospitals will go to hospitals all the time, but actually hospitals are scary places to be. If you compared those statistics to any of your over-the-counter medications, or perhaps more applicable in recent times, if you look at the COVID vaccines, the stats of getting an adverse event were significantly less when you look at the COVID vaccine versus when you go into hospital for a procedure or for an admission. So what COVID then did is it brought alternative care settings to the forefront because the hospital systems were overwhelmed. You know, people couldn't get into casualties. There weren't enough beds to be able to service and admit patients because of COVID. So we started looking at alternative ways to be able to still reach patients because it was quite a scary time, you know, for healthcare, right? And we knew with COVID, what typically led to, to the high mortality was a phenomenon in healthcare called silent hypoxia. So essentially what happened to a lot of COVID patients was that you know, they had an inflammatory phase that affected their lungs and their oxygenation would drop quite significantly. And it would often mm -hmm. happen with patients not actually knowing that it's, it, it's happening to them. Happened in people's sleep or it happens and then there's delays to get access to care. So, you know, that's kind of what brought hospital at home to the forefront. At the same time, we had already had telemedicine. Uptake was relatively slow, but you already had facilities such as, you know, video conferencing call, et cetera. So hospital at home takes all of that innovation. It takes remote monitoring devices that you can wear on your upper arm or it can be a chest patch on your chest. It transmits up to 22 physiological parameters. So if you've ever been in an ICU, all those fancy screens, even if on TV, if you've ever watched Grey's Anatomy, etc. So you'll know mm -hmm. you'll have all these big screens and you'll have all of these vital signs, heart rate, you know, oxygen saturation, respiratory rate, blood pressure. And all of these patients are monitored 24 hours a day. So remote monitoring technology, minus all the wires that would restrict your movement, allows us to be able to then monitor patients remotely. So that means if, for example, you get diagnosed with pneumonia and you need IV antibiotics, et cetera, we can now admit you into your home. We'll have nurses coming into your home on a daily basis to give you all of the necessary treatment that your physician has prescribed. Your physician is able to still do a virtual ward round and connect with you through the platforms and see how you're doing. You're able to, to chat to the doctor 24 hours a day if there is a need. We've also got a what we call a clinical command center. And this um, command center is, is situated here in Johannesburg. We've got emergency trained doctors who literally have all of these big screens. And for all our patients are monitoring their vital signs 24 hours a day. So if you deviate from your baseline, an alarm will trigger on the dashboard and those doctors will call out to you and, and, and determine whether, you know, there's a massive issue. And as part of the platforms that we did, so we partnered with a company called Bioformis, initially formed out of Singapore, but now based in the U.S. So they provide the hospital at home platform and remote monitoring technology.
What's superior about Biformis is that they've also then integrated AI technology into the platform. And what and their technology is called the BioVitals Index. And they developed they co-developed it alongside Harvard. It is FDA certified. And what this clever little technology does is for every single one of our patients who are admitted into hospital at home, it establishes a baseline for you. So within an hour, it knows what Ryan's baseline heart rate, blood pressure, oxygen saturation is. And Mm -hmm. it monitors very subtle deviations. So even before you would feel physically unwell, it's already picked up that you've deviated away from your baseline. Um, it collects other kind of clinical information like movement, sleep, et cetera. So it's able to then say, well, he's not active at the moment. So we can't explain this deviation through motion or increased physical activity. So then this is a, a fundamental issue. And what we've seen for some patients, that uh, I'll give you a case study of a patient, a uh, male patient known with prostate cancer, known heart failure patient was admitted into the program. All the vital signs looked within normal. I mean, nothing that would have been alarming. But this biovital index was trending upwards. And when it reaches a certain threshold, the recommendation is to transfer the patient back into hospital. The patient at this point felt fine, physically fine, no complaints. The patient reviewed by a clinician in the hospital, blood tests were run, everything looked normal. 24 hours later, I kid you not, this patient then developed what we call an intestinal obstruction. So basically a blockage in their bowel, which if they hadn't been in the right setting, wouldn't have had the right treatment in time. So what this then does is it adds a second layer of of rigor and reduces the medical risk. Because most people will say, well, what happens to me if something goes wrong in the home? Can you get to me quickly, right? Mm. So the AI technology is actually able to pick it up even before you would become unwell. And what we've seen is before the medical event happens, it's usually a time frame of about 24 to 36 hours. So we've got plenty of time to transfer you into hospital and get you the necessary workup that's required and access to care that, that we need. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, I was getting goosebumps while you're talking. Just just because, I mean, I've built systems like that similarly, not for humans, for, for self-healing desktops. And it's all a very similar premise. And I mean, I use an aura ring, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah. And that's basically my indicator. So I know, and I, and I check it probably not every sec- every day now, but probably every second or third day. And when I'm starting to feel a little bit run down, I go and check my temperature. And I don't check the, the spot marks. I check the trend. And I can see, oh, there mm-hmm. we go. Temperature's gone up. I'm going to be sick for, for the next day. And I mean, I, you know, based on just having a little bit of an indicator, I'm not so worried about so much the being sick anymore because yeah. I know... I know enough now to, and it's, and it's been self-aware to the extent yeah. of your own body. Um, and, and then I go look at the oxygen and, and I use the Apple Watch for, for blood oxygen. And I go check that. If that's dropped like to 93, 95, then I know it's something more like, like more reason to take it easy. But if my yeah. if my blood oxygen is back, it's still at 100 percent. And I'm like, oh, it's probably just a bit of sinus or a bit of allergies or something. And I just, you, you know, you're so, so much more sophisticated than my sort of layman view but there's people that don't even do what i'm doing that don't even do that exactly exactly and i mean it's it it is on the on the scary side of science fiction in some respect that you know you've been monitored remotely by a big you know control center and they look in all your vitals but but it's a paid for service you're you're you're, you know you're wanting to do it you're doing it by choice as a patient 
And I was just wondering, I mean, you know, besides your case study, but if you had that, if you've got a person who's come onto the service, because now they're aware of it, they, they you know, obviously have, they've signed up to it. Do you bring them into the hospital periodically so they have, they've built that familiarity that they're going to the same place and then they're still at home? So not at all. So yeah. So the entryway into the admission is you would typically have gone to a casual to an emergency room and you see a doctor there and the doctor, you know, examines you and says you do need inpatient care. But the following that process is, well, what is the level of care that you would require if we had admitted you into hospital? So there's Mm, typically mm. three categories of acuity in a hospital. So most patients will go into a general ward. Yeah. The next level of patients who are sick but not like too sick would probably go into a high care. And then if you're really sick, you're going to go into intensive care. Now, mm. if you unpack what typically happens in a general ward admission for people who've been admitted, you will typically have a nurse come to your bedside once or twice in a 24-hour period. Yeah. And at that point, they'll take your blood pressure and all of your vitals, give you your medication, and you won't, you'll likely not see them again until your next dose is due. So there's blind spots in terms of, well, in between these visits, what's happening to this person from a physiological perspective? And then, of course, there's all of the inconveniences that come with it. Your family's restricted to certain visiting times. You've got to drive around the hospital, try and find parking. You know, the coffee in the coffee shop (laughs) is really crap and the food is not the greatest, right? Hey, look, a hospital in South Africa... 10 times better than a hospital in the NHS, trust yeah, me. And we got to good ones. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. And, and, um, and parking, I mean, I mean, don't even joke about parking. Like, you know, we got a friend who's going, she had an appointment at, at, at East Surrey, which is a, a Royal Surrey, a very good hospital. Yep. She spends an hour trying to find parking. Yep. Now, who's got an hour? I mean, never mind the hour drive to get there. So, so who's got the time, like, you know, to do that? So, yeah. so the, this, this, I mean, you, and you mentioned the video calls and that stuff. I mean, we do that obviously here as well, but there, there's got to be a, a level of of modernization where going to see someone physically when you, when they, they, I mean, yes, there's some stuff you still have to like move somebody's arm to see that it's working potentially. Yeah. You know, there's still those sorts of checks, but the majority of checks, you know, could be done through through telemetry. Yeah, um, absolutely. Which which makes sense to me. So sorry, carry on with what you're saying. Absolutely. So yeah, the entry point into hospital at home is is now when you're seeing your doctor in your casualty or in the doctor's rooms, they if your level of acuity is the general ward, right? They now yeah. can make the decision to say, well, let me actually admit you in your home. So they've done the whole physical examination. They've taken a history. They've done a workup. They're quite clear on what they're treating and it's pneumonia, for example. They would then, you know, admit you into your home. So they would go through the same processes and send through a pre-authorization to us and we would approve for your admission in the home. Critical is your entire episode of care. Your admission in the home is funded as it would in a normal hospital. So the patients uh, aren't that, yeah. out of pocket. So even for the technology, et cetera, the patient isn't out of pocket for any element of that admission that happens in the home. And that initial face-to-face encounter with the with the doctor is meant to essentially risk stratify you, right? To ensure mm-hmm. that we're putting the right patients into hospital at home, low acuity patients. Because the last thing you want to put is a patient who you know it within 24 hours or 12 or 12 hours has a high likelihood of, of ending up in the ICU. 
those yes. are not patients yes. that you want to admit into into hospital at home. So once that initial face-to-face encounter has happened, the patient goes home and the nurses will bring the technology, set it up. If you need chest physio, for example, the physiotherapist will come into your home and provide that. If you mm-hmm. need a low-dose oxygen, we'll have the oxygen delivered into your home. So everything that is prescribed by your doctor is then delivered into the home um, by discovery. And I'm just thinking about the logistics of that. So because you're monitoring these people, and I'm going to use the word proactively, because you are, I mean, you'll have baselines and that kind of stuff. You, you, I mean, your ability is to logistically manage resources. So to have the nurses go at the right time, to have order things to be available, sort of just-in-time mentality. I mean, yeah. that must be so, almost like almost like conducting an orchestra. You know, you can, you can get such a harmonious experience because in theory, if everything works, that because, yeah. you know, you've got, you, you can you have that visibility because often, you know, and I go back to my example here of the NHS, if you, they, they don't plan ahead. So they're always reactive to the situation. So, so GPs are always behind the, the eight ball because they can't, they, they still do it the old way. Yeah. But because you've got this information and, and yes, you started with elderly, but you can go further and further down. Yes your ability to capacity manage and to capacity manage from resources that are not geographically constrained. So you can't, yeah. you don't need to have a doctor in Joburg to see you. Exactly. You can go see, like my uncle's in, in Nasda, but he flies to Cape Town to see his surgeon, his heart guy. Yeah. You know, now he doesn't, now he doesn't have to do the flight. He can just do the video call. And now exactly. they've got a, oh, my dad's got a pacemaker. So let's say the pacemaker was smart and, sec- and, and secured, of course, but they can pick up the data there. So that they don't have to do the trip, the drive. My dad's like seventy-seven, so him going to the hospital is a big is a mission. He'd probably fall into the service. Yeah, I, you know, I could just think about the benefits to them. I mean, that's the great thing about this. You can feel the benefit just sitting here thinking about it. So, I mean, what has been the what have been the challenges to adoption to this? Um, so the major challenge, both in South Africa and globally, is as you can imagine, doctors and and the health system is traditionalist in nature. Yeah. And because we've done things the same way for such a long time, it's difficult to kind of change people's perception. So change management is 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 a massive issue. But what has kind of been the catalyst is COVID, as I've said, because mm. it absolutely turned the notion upside down that serious illness could only be treated in the confines of a brick and mortar hospital. Mm. Through COVID, we saw that we could actually do things differently. And we treated many patients throughout the pandemics quite successfully in, in their home. So it's 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 one conversation at a time. It's changing one doctor's mind at a time. But it's also in having them understand that from a clinical risk perspective, because doctors will often ask, well, what are the medical legal implications? Am I putting myself mm. at greater risk by treating patients in the home? And it's not, it's only until they understand the the clinical evidence and the rigor behind the program that you're actually able to demystify that. If anything, you've actually got greater risk in a general ward, in a brick and mortar, given the evidence. And over the last 12 years, there's been quite robust clinical evidence and, and clinical trials that have been done around hospital at home. And what we know is patient satisfaction is obviously significantly better. You're sleeping in the comfort of your own home, eating your own food, surrounded by family and loved ones and familiar surroundings. And then the second is around the quality outcomes. So we typically in healthcare would measure, once a patient is discharged from hospital, we would measure their 30-day readmission rate. 
how likely are you to land back in hospital after being discharged out of hospital? We also then measure your utilization of casualty post the admission. So how likely are you within 30 days to bounce back into the casualty? And then obviously there's things like mortality, there's hospital acquired infections, et cetera. So when you look at hospital at home and compare them to their clinical twins in a traditional brick and mortar, the quality is far superior. You actually have zero hospital acquired infections because you don't have any hospital superbugs in your home for most people. And then your 30-day readmission rate and casualty utilization is also significantly lower. And people recover easier. They mobilize faster and they recover quickly. So the length of stay is significantly lower as well. And then, of course, from a health financing perspective, when you look at the cost of a hospital at home admission versus the same exact admission in a traditional brick and mortar, in our data, we're seeing that it's 30% more cost effective. And Mm. it's no different from the evidence that has been published internationally. So what's unique about this model is irrespective of geography, the outcomes we're seeing are exactly the same. And it talks to the to the robustness of it. I'm surprised you say the same. I actually would have thought they'd be better. And, and, and not not just because it has to be better, but I would think because you are reducing the cost to the customer, the patient, because you are treating them in their home environment, their, their bounce back would be better. And because you're only bringing them into the hospital when you need to, your hospital capacity would, be, would also be better managed. Yeah, mm. absolutely. So, I, I mean, as much as you're saying it's the same, I think it, I think it's, it is better. And and I think you know going back to to sort of the brick and mortar the brick and mortar problem which is maintenance and space utilization and all those things there's probably uh, you know un, unmeasured benefits absolutely um, absolutely to to the hospitals yeah particularly in 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 the context of South Africa right we've got 60 million mm. South Africans the private healthcare sector only services nine million South Africans. So there's massive disparities, and we know that our public health system is is overwhelmed. So if you look at hospital at home, that says, and 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 you know globally we've also got another problem, which is, you know, specialists are very few. So doctors mm. as a whole are very few, and waiting times to see an endocrinologist, for example, even in Johannesburg, is anywhere between three to six months. Mm. Um, but if you plug them into the digital ecosystem using remote monitoring technology and telemedicine, that endocrinologist, you can actually now extend the reach of the endocrinologist, right? Because yep. you're now bringing in efficiencies into their practice. Mm. So what, what I think will happen over the next couple of years is clinical practice will change mm. into a hybrid model where they will always be for the really, really sick patients that face-to-face encounter. But for people who would be serviced in a general ward, that care will transition more and more into the virtual ecosystem. And then because of the 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 the, the rapid pace at which AI is also developing, you know, in healthcare, I think we're going to become more efficient as clinicians in the way that we treat our patients. Because if you look at healthcare expenditure, up to about 10% of healthcare expenditure is attributed to medical error. In the U.S., that numbers is estimated to be anywhere between 18 billion to around 20 billion U.S. dollars that's spent sure. on medical error, right? So if you've got AI technology that takes in all of these different inputs and gets you a precise diagnosis in a short amount of time, 
imagine what the possibilities are, right? It means you get access to the right level of care in a shorter time frame, And so your ability to recover and the impact of your life is significantly improved going forward. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it, it makes a whole lot of sense to me. And I, and I was thinking while you were talking, you know, the amount of doctor's rooms you go into where they do run late because of the transition time yep. between patients. But if, and, and you would have seen this, you know, again, through COVID, where everyone was kind of brought to the same level. There is no transition time between meetings per se, because you're just going back to back to back, which is not a good thing either. Don't get me, don't yep. get me wrong. But, but it does create boundaries in some respects and, and you need to be, you need to block your time out appropriately. But I think that's also the benefit to a lot of these, you know, specialists or consultants, because when you have that transition overflow, you never have time to do the work. Yeah. But now because you can block out your diary and stuff can only be booked in your diary where it's open, you can be a little more predictable as well around how much consulting you'll do. And then if it's going through a digital channel, you know, we're doing it now, we're transcribing this call, that transcription is now happening. Okay, it may yeah. not be good. I mean, it may, be, it may not be as good as, you know, as it could be, but it'll get better. Yeah. But that also cuts out a lot of a lot of noise unnecessarily. And, and I do think, you know, AI being involved there, again, to listen to symptoms to, 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 that, are, that are not necessarily picked up by everybody and analyze and go, well, you know, he said this, he said this, he said this, but he also said this thing which you said this might be a cough, but actually it sounds like, you know, predicted, you know, 30% yeah. chance more of pneumonia or like my dad, you know, he's had some stuff. They could have probably picked it up six months earlier if they just were looking for that little bit extra, which, which a yeah. model would look for because it can process it, you know, in a few seconds, minutes. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I often say to, to clinicians as we speak to them around hospital at home and digital technology is AI will not replace doctors. Never. But doctors who embrace AI will replace doctors that don't. Yes. Yeah. No, you spot on. Right? I mean, we, we, we met some guys in, in Egypt a couple of months ago, and he's a, a radiographer. And I was asking him about, you know, x-rays and MRIs going through AI. And he said, you know, it, it like some things it's really good. Like it picks yeah. up stuff that we didn't pick up. Some stuff that just can't, it can't do it. But, you know, it really makes a big difference is we've got a backlog of x-rays for COVID yeah. for like six months. And we're just putting it through that. And it's literally turning around like two or 3,000 yeah. x-rays in a day. And we only have to look at 300 of them because that's exactly. the ones that couldn't tell anything. Yeah. Like that's where it's huge. Like, yeah, well, that's, you know, that's, that's where it adds the value is, is throughput. Yeah, um, absolutely. So it actually frees you up to do, you know, the high order thinking tasks, the super complex that AI is super complex for, you know, in the example that you gave with your radiologist is those, you know, complex scans, et cetera, they can now spend more time focusing on that versus your plain film x-rays where the bulk of them are normal in the in the first place. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And 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 I think, you know, and, and I'm and I've seen it a little bit here and there. And and I guess there's a level of trusting the platform that you're working with. And, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of the Vitality program which we've talked about where, you know, you're giving your steps and you get benefit from doing it. And I think I think that's one of the reasons why Vitality and 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 momentum with multiplier have always done well because they avoid people getting sick because they get teaching them good behaviors early on yep. in life lifting weights doing exercise all that stuff going to watch a movie as much as it's it's people laugh about it but actually going to watch a movie relaxing you know provided you don't eat all the all the chocolates and the and the slush puppies it's, it's probably good for you but I'm, w- w- what i was going to get to is that I, I am seeing like with with a lot of corporate packages here you're getting an app that you will that you'll 
before you book your call with your GP, they're asking you some basic questions like how have yeah. you slept, what's your mental state, those things. Now, people can still lie about that stuff, which is why you need the telemetry to back it up. Yeah. Because some people do live in a in a in a in a in a distorted world where they think, well, I slept well last night, but actually, if you look at the data, you 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 know you tossed and turned and you got up four times and you know you didn't sleep well at all. That's an important thing to somebody who's trying to be trying to be rational about their symptoms because if they yeah. haven't slept, they're not going to be rational. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. And and this goes to to that you know other things you know you mentioned restraining people, sedating them, etc. Multiple days of not sleeping well will lead somebody down the route of of going crazy. I mean, yeah, basic behavior. So I mean, you're you guys are doing it in South Africa only at the moment, or are you going into the other countries as well? Just I'm just curious about how far. So we're doing it in South Africa at the moment, but we are looking, you know, in the next two to three years to then, you know, export the model into our other partner markets. But as I said, mm. we're not the only, you know, health system that's doing hospital at home. There's, you know, an expansive list of hospitals in the U.S. that are running hospital at home programs, the likes of your Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, the Brigham and Women's, Mass Gen, etc. And then more and then in the in the UK as well given the issues that we're having in the NHS you'll know that coming out of covid the NHS has a bold ambition where it wants to actually convert actually establish and they're calling it anywhere between 50 to 70 virtual beds per 100,000 people in the UK and they're trying to scale up in the next year to 50,000 virtual beds um so oh, as wow. opposed to putting I patients into hospitals, yeah. So they've right now they're they're servicing around just under two thousand patients on a weekly basis in the virtual beds. Okay. Um, yeah, but they a- are aiming to to expand that quite significantly to g- decongest the hospitals and address some of the issues that are, are being experienced that side of the world as well. But you, but you know what makes me laugh because you're telling me this stuff, and actually the, the biggest problem is that they try and channel everything through a GP. And and until you break that bottleneck, it's it, all this other stuff is just not the not the it's they haven't they haven't taken it back back to first principles, which is connect the customer to the service they need directly without having the bottleneck because the bottleneck is the GP right now. That's why it takes so long to get to to see anybody because you have to go through a GP. There's still it's, signs there's still signs behind that, right? Because the strength of a health system is determined by the strength of its primary care, right? And sure. the GPs being the navigators when it comes to patients. So what we know is when you look at the costs generated at a primary care level versus at specialist level, they're vastly different. More expensive in the specialist realm. And if you think sure. about it, specialists in in the training that they've done is to pick up the really rare and complicated stuff. Yeah, sure. So a GP treating a pneumonia versus a specialist treating a pneumonia, the cost delta is is quite significant. So yeah, a wealth yeah. in a well in a health in a well functioning health system, you actually want patients seeing their GP first, um, and only those who really need specialist care then transitioning into into the specialist. So it's less about you know the GP being a bottleneck. Perhaps there aren't enough GPs. And that's no, where the issue is, yeah. So, and and yes, there is a silly limitation here to the number of GPs trained per year. I think they only train twelve thousand a year or something silly like that. And and I and I get what you're saying. I mean, I that's why I say I think I think where they're looking to solve the problem with going to virtual beds 
they're probably still not looking at the right place to solve the problem, to solve the problem. which is which is the GP. Because in South Africa, you know, if I want to go and see a physiotherapist, mm-hmm. I phone the physiotherapist and I go. Yeah. But if I want the NHS to cover my physiotherapist, I have to phone the GP first to get referred to the physiotherapist. It's a referral pathway, yeah. And and when you've got privates here, you used to be able to just refer yourself. Now you also have to go through the GP first. So now you've got this double whammy of, of well, I hurt my calf. I just need someone to go work on it. And I'm now going to work. Like, by the time I've gone through the whole process of six weeks, I've fixed my own issue because I've gone and massaged my own leg or, or I've gone to, you know, somebody. You know, I've just, what, what I'm saying is I haven't solved the, you know, they made it so complicated, you just don't solve the problem. You don't go do anything about it or you just yep. live with it. And And I think that's where, you know, what you're doing with hospital in the home. And, and you mentioned, I mean, yes, it starts with the elderly. But I think there's lots of people. We've got a, a neighbor who's got MS. You know, mm. she, she probably would benefit from hospital at home. You know, her husband works for NHS, funnily enough. And you know, he's out for long shifts. If she falls, none of us will know. Yeah. Because the, the thing that I was thinking about when, when we started the call is, is a South African lady as well. She was running a, a company where they were building a robot, basically, that moved around inside the house with sensors and cameras and and yeah. the pill dispensing and all that stuff. I can't remember the company. I think it was called Crayon. Might be, might be Crayon. But the idea behind that was one to be a, a psychological partner for the person, so they could talk to they could talk to anyone any time because it was there was a microphone and a speaker and a, and a camera and a, sorry a camera and a this digital screen. But then also their pills would be brought to them to, put, yeah. to take their pills. They could do their biometrics through their like blood pressure and all that kind of stuff. So it was a very fancy idea. I don't know how far they ever got. But I was thinking about would that be part of your solution? And it sounds like you're kind of doing that with some of the things. And I'm yeah. wondering what are they actually? You mentioned wearables. So, so what does somebody actually get? Do they get like what they need, or do you give them like a base kit that they have to wear certain things? All the yeah. Time? So each each of our nurses, when they come into the home to onboard a patient, comes in with a kit. And as part of that kit is the the Avarion device, very small device, slightly bigger than an Apple Watch. They wear it on their upper arm. And that's it. It's a rechargeable device. Once it's charged, it holds charge for up to 18 hours, which was obviously important in the South African context in the background of of load shedding, (laughs) etc. So our nurse also comes in with a UPS battery because the next question is, well, is there interruption in monitoring during load shedding? So our nurses will also come in with UPS batteries. And then obviously what was important to me in designing the program was that it shouldn't be an elitist product. Meaning if you're sitting in the township and you don't have Wi-Fi in your home because the remote monitoring device needs Wi-Fi to transmit to the dashboard, you shouldn't you shouldn't be excluded out of hospital at home. So what we yeah. also do is we then provide the patients with a smartphone that has mobile data. They're able to chat with the clinical care team through the app. Very intuitive. Even our elderly patients love it. And with the scenario that you gave earlier on around, you know, most people living alone or loneliness, particularly in the elderly population, we find that they love it the most. So they will be chatting 24 mm. hours a day, asking the doctor what they've had for tea and all of that jazz. So super intuitive and easy to use from a technology perspective. But the nurse brings every single thing that the patient requires. So we will set it up and use it. It doesn't restrict your mobility. There's no wires connected to it at all. Very comfortable. You can sleep with it. It's not going to disturb your sleep. And through the dashboard, we're able to monitor connectivity. 
you know, if the Wi-Fi is good or if the mobile mobile signal is poor and we're able to swap up the SIM cards, for example, we're also able to monitor the battery life on it. So if you're running low, we will pop you a message and say, just put it on charge. And within an hour, it's fully charged as well. Oh, wow. Fast charging. Yeah. Gee, yeah. that's good. Yeah. So from and, our perspective, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, from our perspective, we're device agnostic because the technology is evolving at such a rapid pace. We're looking to obviously bring as much convenience as possible into the home. So when you talked about the pill dispenser, there's actually now, you know, small little pill boxes that, you know, at nine o'clock, if it's time for you to take a certain medication, it will dispense exactly the right amount of dose for you. And this becomes important for your chronic patients who've got multiple chronic conditions with multiple different pills that they've got to take and usually get confused in terms of, well, what was I supposed to take now? What is it for, right? So these little devices actually take the math out of it and it will dispense the right amount at the right time. But what's also intriguing is you're able to remotely adjust the patient's doses. So once the, the doctor gets the blood results back, if they need to increase the dose, they can, they can modify it remotely. So at the next dosing, that patient is already getting the new dose. Wow, that's so cool. And then are you doing other stuff like weighing them and, and taking blood? I mean, the nurse with yeah. the blood draws, obviously. Yes. But do they so weigh the themselves every day or? Uh, so we do for our heart failure patients where it's critical to to measure their weight and how it fluctuates. They've got the digital scales immediately when they hop on the, the scale, it will transmit uh, the weight to the remote dashboard. The nurse will draw the bloods as required. But even in that space, technology is is evolving quite rapidly. And we're now having, you know, point of care devices where you can do, you know, the basic lab panels that you would need for an admission. When we look at most people will then ask, well, what happens if I need an x-ray? That technology is also rapidly changing. Fuji, for example, has a portable x-ray machine that we're looking at at the moment, which the nurses could carry at the size of a, it's not big, it's not heavy. They can carry they into could, the home and be able to do the x-ray in the home. Holy moly. Yeah. A portable x-ray, literally a portable x-ray machine. Lit a literal of, portable x-ray machine. I, I was thinking about like a cash and carry truck size vehicle no. driving around. Not at all. If you need an x-ray, you've got portable ultrasound. You connect remotely to, to the cardiologist, for example, and you do a scan of the heart. They can see everything in real time. They, they're able to also remotely guide the technician in terms of the exact area, the depth, and all of that. Wow. That is amazing. I can't actually believe it. I mean, I mean you can believe it exists, but you can't believe it exists, Yeah, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's very, it's, it's, a, and, and I mean, we, we talked about load chain for a second. I mean, you know, I'm assuming that with with even that kind of constraint that South Africa has at this point in time, you know, 18 hour battery for for a device. I mean, you could you mentioned hour charging. What about the other devices? I mean, your, your control center is probably running on generators and and yes. all that as well. And is there redundancy there, like another a backup backup unit somewhere or? So we've got our, our generators and, and all of that stuff. We haven't had any issues in terms of being able to monitor patients. But as you can imagine, as Discovery, we've got access to that infrastructure to ensure that we obviously don't compromise patients. But even in the hospital, your traditional brick and mortars, they've also had to put into place those type of processes, generators, well, etc. Yeah, so so what I meant by that was, and actually, I actually saw this in Mothal Bay, so I went and had to make sure it's done. Then I went to go see a biokinetist who I'd only made the appointment with the day before. 
And he was like, oh, yeah, I've got your x-rays. Let's have a look at them. Yep. So he didn't have to even get get them. For, like, you know, obviously, because I've signed up with him, he got permission to see my stuff. But I was wondering about that sort of thing where, you know, you've got a patient that 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 falls. The neighbor calls for an ambulance. They pick up the patient to take him to the hospital. You guys would know about that because you've got telemetry and all the rest of it. Yes. Absolutely. How how do you, I mean, let's think about this in the future. Like, what about HIPAA, H-A-P-P-A-A-A, sharing mm-hmm. of data, that sort of stuff? I mean, do you do you think that there'll be a, a sort of alliances between all these different platforms to share data or, or even anonymously share data to improve the, the algorithms? Yeah, absolutely. So the so the data is, is and, and I mean, all of this technology works within the confines of exactly that those types of regulations. Mm. As long as there's no patient identifiers, et cetera, that's how it's 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 able to 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 kind of work in a in in a secure and safe manner. And then obviously there's patient consent in terms of you know who you can share the data with. For hospital at home, each patient has their care team. So it's it's multidisciplinary. It's the physician, it's the remote command center, it's the nurse, but your data is only shared with your clinical care team and no one else. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Great. Uh, this has been a lovely chat. I really enjoyed it. Do you want people to be able to contact you or do you want them to go to a specific place to get more information? Yes, absolutely. For for patients who are interested in a hospital at home and learning more about it, on our Discovery website, we do have a hospital at home page. You can also email us at hospitalhome at discovery.co.za and we'll be happy to give you more information about hospital at home. Fantastic. It's been a really great chat. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for for coming on. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.